When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies or Ponces. Uh, if you're saying the word right, uh, this is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Um, before we get going here, just want to give a shout out to people who are supporting me on Patreon and uh, and uh, PayPal, all, all the other different apps that you can financially support. That's been huge. Really appreciate that. Uh, and those subscribed on YouTube, that's awesome. If you guys are watching this on YouTube and you're not subscribed, Feel free to subscribe if you like this stuff. I give uh, a lot of it. So there's that. And then also, um, uh, if you want to support this podcast further, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would be huge. But enough about that. Uh, today is a really exciting episode. I have with me Dr. Harold Netland. He's been my professor here at TEDS and taught me an insane amount and pushed me on a lot of stuff. And help me change my mind and help me dig in in other ways. And I love this dude. He's influenced me before I came to seminary because he taught my brother, Joel. And uh, I learned secondhand through Joel and then my friend, KJ Johnson. And both of them now have successful ministries of their own. This guy's the man. So I'm really excited. We're going to be talking a little bit about his book, Christianity and Religious Diversity. Uh, and we're going to be talking about religion and what is it, uh, what it's not, and how it's formed. So uh, without further ado, let's bring him in. Dr. Netland, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you, Parker. It's good to be with you. Yeah, same. And uh, it's been a while since we've we've actually been able to see each other because of COVID and stuff, but it's it's just nice to, to see you on here. It's good to see you virtually. And uh, uh, seriously, Parker, I actually helped you change your mind on something? Yeah, Whoa. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, through, I mean, it took a couple of years, but yeah, we stretching and, and changing and it's been good. It's been really fun. Good. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to, to talk about religion because a lot of times people use the word and we don't clarify. We don't get clear on what we mean by it. And there's a whole history to it that a lot of us don't know. I didn't know until I took your religion in the modern world class. So I wanted to, to get into that. But I, before we jump in on religion, I wanted to find out some, I wanted to share your personal history. You know, How did you get into studying religion and philosophy of religion? Okay, yeah, good question. Um, well, let me just share a little bit about uh, yeah. the journey. And uh, you can push or probe any, any way you want to go with that. But... Mm -hmm. Um, I was born uh, to missionary parents in Japan um, in the mid-1950s, so not long after World War II. Uh, I grew up in a uh, very, very poor, um, somewhat backward part of Japan, in northern Japan, heavily 
farming and uh, fishing, very animistic. Uh, lots and lots of temples and shrines. And uh, in Japan in general, the um, uh, Christian population is about 1%. Uh, up in the north where I was, uh, far fewer than that. So um, I mentioned that just to kind of indicate uh, my early years, I was really aware of the sharp difference, uh, not only between Americans and Japanese, but between uh, my parents, us Christians. You know, you'd have 10, 15 uh, Japanese believers in church on a Sunday and then everybody else. And... Um, so those were shaping influences. Uh, upon graduation from high school, I left Japan and uh, spent about 11 years in California, uh, undergrad at Biola, and then studied at several seminaries in the area, ended up doing uh, a PhD in philosophy at Claremont. And I had started out uh, really interested in church history. Uh, I love history. I still do. When I when I just want to read fun stuff, I'll I'll get something in history and read. And um, so I started out in church history, but I I found the questions I really wanted to address were ideas questions, qu uh, history of ideas, and um, that got me more and more into philosophy. And finally, I just decided, okay, let's let's just switch over and uh, enter the philosophy program. John Hick had uh, come to Claremont in, oh, well, must have been 78 or 79. And uh, at the time he was, uh, Parker, it's hard for people today to imagine how different the philosophy of religion climate was back in the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, this was before the Society of Christian Philosophers started. Uh, EPS, none of that. Yeah, right. And uh, so you you had a handful of prominent philosophers who were theists in some sense of the term. Mm -hmm. John Hick was one of them. Uh, did, you, did, was he, did he already have a reputation by this point, by coming to Claremont? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, he had, he had established himself in the 60s as one of the very few um, philosophical defenders of classical orthodoxy. Hmm. And so, you know, does God exist, um, the Trinity? Uh, I mean, he wasn't a fundamentalist by any means, mm -hmm. but, um, but he was in the mainstream Trinitarian tradition. And that began to change uh, in the late 60s into the 70s. Uh, by the time he came to Claremont, he had rejected everything. Hmm. Uh, he was no longer a theist. Uh, he was a religious pluralist. But he was still really, uh, Bill Alston, Hick, Plantinga was becoming better known at the time, but still not very well known. Uh, George Mavrodis, I mean, these were the people you wanted to study with if, uh, if you wanted to do serious philosophy of religion. Uh, so that's how I ended up at Claremont uh, with Hick. And at the time, I was not interested in questions of pluralism. Uh, you know, I was interested in all the standard uh, historical uh, PR questions, but you couldn't study with Hick without being pushed in that direction. And so that's where my interest in uh, religion, religious studies, and uh, pluralism uh, really took shape. Yeah, I love that. There's so many things that I want to I want to track down with you. But didn't you didn't you do your dissertation on like religious language? Yes. 
I mean, back in the 60s, that's all anybody talked about. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I initially put together a proposal on a dissertation on miracles, Hmm. you know, standard stuff, David Hume, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I thought it was a pretty decent proposal. And so I brought it to Hick and he looked it over and, he, you know, kind of ho-hum, all right. Uh, and then he brought a book off the shelf, uh, Yogananda's uh, Autobiography of a Yogi. Hmm. And, uh, you know, this, he was a neo-Hindu starting self-realization fellowships all over California and whatnot. And he said, of course, if you're going to write on miracles today, you've got to deal with this stuff, too. Hmm. And uh, so I read through that and I go, okay, this is going to be a lot more complicated than I thought it was. And so I switched topics and did something on Aquinas and analogical predication, James Ross, uh, what at the time, way back then, was uh, kind of cutting edge uh, philosophy of language stuff. Then after I finished the dissertation, I never looked at that stuff again. I know you always tell me that, but I'm like, that's right. I, I, I Analogical predication is huge. Like that's so. Oh, it's huge. Uh, it's, it's so really good. Important issues there. Yes, we've kind of moved away from a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. So someday I'm gonna have to take a look at that and uh, and and pull from it as well. But so so getting into um, well, actually, I wanted to follow up when you were growing up in Japan, and there's other Christians, uh, even though you're in the north and it's really uh, not a, not a lot of them. Were they Catholics or were they? Did you have evangelical Christians there? Like, what, what did the what did the Christian population look like? Um, it was probably split pretty evenly. Hmm. Catholic, uh, a bit more. I wouldn't even say liberal. You don't have much of a liberal church in Japan. If you're going to be a Christian, you you stand for something. Sure. Uh, otherwise, why bother? Right. But anyway, a little broader theological tradition. And then the more conservative evangelicals, and probably split pretty evenly. Okay, yeah, that's that's really well because we read um, Silence by Endo this year yeah. for for Arcadi's class, and yeah. I, I I really had no idea the history of Catholicism in in Japan. Yeah, it, did that was that all like snuffed out by the persecution, or did those did, did that uh, tradition r- remain strong there? Well, it didn't remain strong, but uh, no, the early Christians were Catholics, Francis Xavier, and um, the the events in silence actually happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the dialogue is fictional, and one of the characters is fictional, um, but the persecution uh, actually happened, and then the Catholic Church, there were no Protestants at that time, mm-hmm. the Catholic Church went underground and Kakure uh, Christian, so they were hidden Christians for several centuries. And Endo, in one of his travels, uh, happened to meet a group of these uh, hidden Christians, and that prompted his interest in in those uh, issues. But uh, yeah, that's a terrific novel. Yeah, it's it's written really well, and it's terrific, uh, terrific, but it's also terrifying and like yes, it hard. Is. It's hard to read that's too. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, okay. So moving back to, to religion in general here. Um, what, this is a big question in your whole book uh, dealing with it and, and several, what is religion? Yeah. Um, well, when you figure it out, Parker, you write the book. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's, think of it in these terms. Um, religion is a word or a concept but like many words and concepts we use, 
Um, it's supposed to pick out, denote certain realities in our world. Mm-hmm. And uh, culture would be another one. Um, worldview is another one. Uh, nation state is another one. And, you know, there's just a whole lot of these kind of words. And if they're, if they're helpful in depicting what is actually there in the world, we use them. If they're not helpful, if they kind of get in the way, then we should abandon them. And religion is one of these really tricky words. Um, you can define it theologically or phenomenologically. And there are good reasons for going with either option, but the the definitions will be different. Um, so a Christian theological definition of religion would be a way of talking about religion that uh, is shaped by Christian categories, assumptions, teachings, and so on. So um, religion is um, humankind's attempt to reach God on its own merits. Okay, that's just, you hear that a lot, something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, that's not a phenomenological definition. That's a theological definition reflecting certain th- Christian commitments. Yeah. Um, a phenomenological definition would be one which looks at religious phenomena, and we he, here we need to clarify what that is, but then tries to descriptively capture what is distinctive about religious phenomena. And so one question would be, uh, is everybody religious? Is everything religious? Well, okay, in that case, religion just becomes so broad and so all-encompassing, it's almost useless. Yeah. But if you can distinguish between what we would call religious and non-religious activities, ways of understanding reality, and I think you can, then you want to focus on the religious part and say, all right, what, what's distinctive about this? What sets this apart? Mm-hmm. And um, maybe I'll stop here and see yeah. where you want to take it from here. Well, there's so we're both evangelicals, and in evangelical circles, it's people will often say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. It's about relationship, not religion. And I go, there you, know, you go. Yep. I, I get that, but it's also religion. And then other people will push back and they'll say, you know, James 1, 27, uh, it's, it's pure religion and undefiled yeah. and it's visiting the poor. And I don't quite think that either one is right. Um, Christianity, well, is Christianity a religion, Dr. Netlin? Uh, Christ, the word Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> The way we normally use the word Christianity, I would say certainly it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Um, is the gospel a religion? Not necessarily, no. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you um, – let me come back to a, a, just a kind of a quick summary of yeah, how please. I would understand religion phenomenologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ninian Smart um, distinguished seven dimensions of what he called religion, mm-hmm. and um, it includes um, – the social dimension, the ethical dimension, the physical material dimension, temples, gardens, crucifix, things like that, doctrines, uh, narrative, story, and experience. Mm -hmm. And so you take these seven dimensions together, and then you look at how people organize their lives, and, uh, and you can say, okay, lots, most people 
tend to organize their lives in religious ways. And then you have a smaller percentage that clearly do not. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a distinction there. If you take those seven dimensions, Christianity clearly is a religion. I mean, all seven of those dimensions apply to empirical Christianity as Christians live out uh, what it means to be disciples of Christ. Uh, To say that is not to... Um, deny that at the heart of the gospel is a relationship yeah. with God. Yeah. But living out that relationship as Christ instructs us will involve you in those seven dimensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, Ninian, Ninian Smart? Yes. Uh, um, he he was not a philosopher, right? He Was a, was he a sociologist? No, he was. He oh, he was a philosopher. He uh, did his doctoral work under uh, J.L. Austin at Oxford, Ordinary Language Philosophy. But he was an interesting guy. Uh, He was a very traditional Anglican. And uh, then during the war, World War II, he became involved in British intelligence and uh, was involved in Southeast Asia and got exposed to Hinduism and what started studying Sanskrit. And so he was trained in philosophy and his early writings are very much traditional PR, mm-hmm. but then he moved from there to becoming more of a phenomenologist of religion and wrote okay. uh, stuff on religions. Yeah, because the only stuff I'm familiar with is the more phenomenological stuff yeah. in his later years. And and you've brought him back. You've, you've wrote, uh, written at least one article in Philosophy of Christie, I think, bringing Smartian ideas back into philosophy, yes. religion type stuff, which is really, yeah. really exciting and helpful. Um Okay, so I, I got to do another excursus here. Yes, because it, it's close. Um, you were doing philosophy of religion, you're doing philosophy and theology, and then you had this moment of kind of a, a turn or awakening up of, hey, I need to start studying some sociology and and phenomenological oh, yeah. kind of stuff. Can you can you tell us that story? Um, do you know which one I'm talking about? You were sitting with a bunch of psych, oh, uh, um, cultural cultural yeah. critics and and they kind yeah. of like woke you from your dogmatic slumbers oh my um yeah no that was 1993 and um i had gone to grad school thinking i would you know put out my cv try and get a job teaching in a school in the state somewhere uh the lord changed our direction we ended up spending 10 years um in japan working with uh the free church in japan and teaching at a uh, Christian college there. Uh, so 93, we were transitioning back to the States and uh, I was invited to participate in a uh, conference in uh, Uppsala, Sweden on uh, the gospel and modernity. Os Guinness uh, kind of brought it together. <clears throat> and um, I had criticized in my first book, I had just a very short two or three paragraph reference to Leslie Newbegin, and I had criticized him for what I saw as fideistic uh, tendencies in his work. And so Newbegin was going to be the plenary or the main the main guy there. And the convener said, well, can you come and, you know, do a presentation based on what you said in that book? And uh, we'll have Newbegin respond. And so so that was a context. And I get there. Uh, there's one other guy trained that I know of, trained in uh, philosophy, Stephen Williams, who 
just retired from teaching years at uh, Union uh, Theological College in Belfast. And uh, all the rest were either theologians or sociologists, hmm. a lot of sociologists. And Guinness had done his doctoral work in sociology. And so the first issue on the table was, what do we mean by modernity? And, you know, I thought, okay, this is, this is easy. Uh, the Enlightenment, that's modernity. Yeah, right. and, um, and as we went around, it became obvious that many of the people there were using different language, different tools than I was using. And um, so I asked for kind of a reading list, help me to get up to speed on what you're talking about here. And they were, these were people trained in the social sciences and sociology in particular, but looking at modernization as an ongoing process mm -hmm. and not as a, um, what I now think is a, a very misleading caricature of the ideas of the Enlightenment as somehow defining an entire age. Right. And uh, once, I, once I figured out what was going on, I found it really enriching. And so bringing the history of ideas approach together with a more grounded uh, approach coming out of um, the social sciences, looking at how modernization has transformed people over the past four centuries. So personally, I find that much more helpful than simply looking at history of ideas as defining what we mean modernity. Yeah. I, well, so that's one of the things you helped change my mind on because I, I took your course because it was... Uh, good man, Parker. Yeah. Well, I, t I took your course because I, I knew it was you and you're going to teach me something while, uh, some, something good. But I was, you know, there's a lot of cultural studies folks in there and they think differently than I think. And yeah. they and I'm like, hey, let's give me an argument for stuff. Let's go. I, I've yeah. trained myself to try to think like that. And they were, they were talking, you know, using different tools. And I heard that story from you and uh, it, it kind of opened me up a little bit, but it's, it's been encouraging because the style that you bring uh, even to this book, it's, it is that synthesis that you're, that you're working on. It's not too much uh, cultural studies that we can't ask truth questions and say, right. well, what's actually true behind this phenomena. And it's not so much philosophy that it, that it, does the um, idealized version of the history of ideas where yeah. you, you chunk it off. And so I, I, it's been really helpful. And I think more apologists um, need to do that as well. They need to, to get getting more clear on the history of ideas means getting less uh, clear about the boundaries, perhaps. Well, I think looking at the uh, historical, social, cultural context helps us to understand even Plato. Uh, or Descartes, or Marx. I mean, why do they say what they do at the time they do? Right. Uh, well, Plato's reacting against the sophists, among other things, and a kind of pervasive popular relativism um, that's uh, around uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Descartes, similarly, is reacting against a, um, a growing skepticism and relativism, Montaigne. Uh, that accompanies the discovery of all these other cultures out there and so on. You can't imagine Karl Marx writing what he did, uh, say, in the 7th century. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't make any sense. Right. So you have to bring the historical social context even to understand the ideas that are being espoused. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's been so helpful. It's a lot, it's a lot of work, and it, it is uncomfortable for someone who wants to just – 
I want to give you five propositions and I want to argue and it's uncomfortable, but it's good. It's, it's really interesting. And even though maybe philosophy papers won't accept that part of it, they don't like, they don't want to hear that part. It's still good to know. And it's still good to have it and to make your argument. It helps you clarify what you're thinking and get right about the, the facts of the case. So someone who does it so well is Charles Taylor. Yeah. If he could just, you know, learn to write a 150 page book, you know, <laughs> but I mean, he brings that kind of synthesis so nicely yeah. uh, in his work. Yeah. So, um, so going back to religion, sorry for, for those mm-hmm. at home who didn't like that, but that's, that was important. I really, I, I had to do that. Um, so we go back to religion, something that is difficult and that I came into to Ted's with really simplistic understanding, and I would often say things like, you know, atheists have a religion too. And I think you probably changed my mind on that, but it's still confusing for me because you'll, you'll, you don't see this very often. But every now and then you'll see like a mega church kind of thing that's for agnostics or for, for atheists, and they're singing songs and they're coming together. And some of them are probably mocking us. Uh, others are like, yeah, I want some kind of social structure without God. Yeah. What do we make of, of those kind of, is, is everyone, you, you already kind of alluded to this, but is everyone religious in a sense? And if not, are those people who are atheists or agnostics and going to like a, a mock church thing, are they religious or what do we make of this? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are those those groups. They're they're pretty few and far between. Right, I right. mean, it's not like you're going to pack out a coliseum with them, right? Um, but where you have that meeting regularly, certain rituals they partake participate in, and so on, then yeah, I would use the term religion there. Okay. Um, there are uh, Buddhism is usually regarded as a religion right. uh, until the very recent modern times, it was clearly atheistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jainism is an atheistic religion. Some forms of Hinduism are clearly atheistic. So to be a religion, you don't have to believe in a god or many gods. Um, Is everybody religious? Um, Usually that question comes from theologically minded people. And uh, and what's, what's behind it is the very important point. Uh, nobody is neutral with respect to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're either moving toward God or moving away from God. Yeah. Uh, we're either regenerate or we're not, and uh, so on. So in that sense, I don't use the word religious there. Okay. Um, I would say, well, theologically, as a Christian, I believe everybody stands in some relationship to God, the creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody is somehow outside of that. But that's a Christian theological commitment. That's not a phenomenological observation. Right. And um, so I would make that distinction. And I think there really are people today. Secularization, I think, is a reality. It's happening. Not quite the way they thought it was back in the 1960s, but you can clearly chart it in different parts of the world. And um, so if you define religion the way we've defined it in terms of smart seven dimensions, it's, it's a social institutional reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is declining in many parts of the world. Um, many people continue to be spiritually interested and uh, practice spirituality of one kind or another, but a very personal, um, eclectic spirituality. Um, 
that technically doesn't fit the religious dimension, so it's kind of an anomaly. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't exaggerate that population too much either. I think there really is a growing population that is just utterly indifferent to religious spiritual issues, uh, and they regard themselves as non-religious. Yeah. Okay. It, how how important how important is that intentional act of like regarding yourself as religious or irreligious? Is that does that fit in in smarts uh, seven categories? Is that is that is there a certain aspect where you have to kind of consider yourself as being religious? Um. Uh, yes and no. Okay. Uh, in other words, um, if you participate in in those seven dimensions, uh, several of them. Um, then you are putting yourself within that nexus. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do that without giving it any thought at all. Okay. Uh, I mean, Japanese, again, if, if you ask Japanese, are you religious? They'll say, no. Uh, what religion are you? Oh, well, I'm Buddhist. Uh, yeah. They know very little about Buddhists, most of them. They, they couldn't care less about Buddhist philosophy and teachings and whatnot, many of them. But it's an identity and a way of living and ordering your life. And that would apply to a lot of Christians around the world, too. Well, I'm a Christian. Uh, you know, Easter, Christmas, I'll be in church. Uh, call the priest when someone dies. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, yes, they're religious, but it's not a highly intentional um, personalizing of those commitments. Yeah, that makes sense. Can, can somebody, I, I mean, we kind of just talked about this, but can somebody be accidentally religious? Not, 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 not. No. Would you say that you're, if someone is, um, like, like the the Japanese person who is saying, you know, I'm not religious, but but calling the priest and and those kind of things, or, um, yeah, or, or an American a right. uh, hundred years ago, right? Uh, are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. I'm an American. What do you think I am? You know, uh, accidentally religious in that sense. Uh, it's just kind of a part of your assumed. Yeah identity yeah well okay so how about um on un, un, unbeknownst to them so um there's this phenomena right now of jordan peterson um i wrote a paper for you on him and uh there are these gatherings where uh you know every city and some of them are listening right now and i love you guys but they're they don't believe in in god um, but they like the union uh, archetypal uh, stories that peterson tells about god and they want to find a higher meaning and they come together in these discussion groups to talk about Peter's, Peterson's work, and they all get together once a month, and they do this, and then they listen to his lectures, and they follow him around in his speaking tours. They haven't done that in, in a year or so, but um, could they could that act could they accidentally be religious and following like Petersonianism, or is that they need to intentionally say I'm I'm yeah. following him or not? Well, that's where I mean this word the concept of religion is really elastic yeah. and. Um, you'll have clear cases that you can identify without any question. Mm -hmm. Is Islam a religion? Oh, okay. Um, and then you have cases where it's pretty clear and you say, no, 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 that's not a religion. Yeah. And you're going to have a lot of boundary cases. It's just not clear. Mm -hmm. And I don't know enough about um, that movement to make any comment, but um, come back to Smart, uh, what he struggled with continually was, what do you do with Marxism? Yeah. And uh, because you can go through all seven of those dimensions and you can say, OK, well, that that fits Marxist communal institutional activities. 
boy, no good Marxist wants to be called religious. Uh, so, uh, or you could look at Mao's China. Um, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and say a lot of Trumpism looks like a religion today in yeah. certain communities. So these are kind of boundary cases. It's not really, okay, is it a religion? Is it not? Um, and you don't settle those kind of questions by looking only at the boundary cases. You look at the clear paradigm cases, and then where it's unclear, you just say, yeah, could be, could be. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And then, so... Um, you know, we read, we read Drescher, uh, choosing a religion and there's a lot of people that the nuns, and I don't know if she yes. made that, if she made that popular, if it was kind of popular before, but I always heard it from her uh, and people citing her work, usually pastors citing her work, but there, there was, um, this one guy like st stuck out to me. He, um, they stopped going to church and it just kind of happened. And then he, his wife had twins and she's breastfeeding them. And he's like, yeah, in this moment when she was doing that, it just, it felt, it felt, uh, it felt right. This is my religion. This is yeah. my religion. And yeah. I was wondering, do you have to, do we decide boundary cases based on how many of the seven criteria of uh, smarty and criteria? Right. So, cause that was individualistic. That was just his family. There's yeah. no community aspect, but it seems like he's acknowledging this is my religion, but maybe he's just speaking euphemistically. Yeah. Again, I would distinguish between religion and spirituality. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, I mean, it depends on some people will use the term religion in such a way that you can have your own private religion, mm -hmm. uh, just me. And this is what I do out in nature. Um, OK. Um, I think it's more helpful to use religion in an institutional sense and then speak about the spirituality as a more personal, private, uh, individual thing. Yeah. Um, that's helpful. And, and all this too, it comes in conversation. So just knowing, just, just being able to label someone doesn't help all that much because they have their own meaning behind it oftentimes or their own care. So, Oh, you're spiritual, but not religious. Help me out with that. What, what does that mean? Yeah. Can, yeah. can you explain that to me? And then now you're in a conversation with a human instead of a, a, a label trying to fit someone somewhere. Yeah. The interesting thing about the spiritual but not religious group, though, is they're usually rejecting institutional religion mm -hmm. for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And so even among the nuns or the spiritual but not religion, religious category, you will find some who are fairly orthodox in their beliefs, Christian yeah. beliefs. They just, they've had it with the church. They don't want to be involved in the church institutionally in any way. Yeah. And uh, and that's, you know, pastors, pastors to be, that's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. Big time, man. Um, okay. So I want to get to modernization and globalization and how that shaped uh, our religious, our idea of religion. But before that, I wanted to get into like worldviews and imaginary and, and stuff like that. Uh I really still, this is one thing you haven't changed my mind on, I don't think, but okay. I, I still like that word worldview, Okay. Uh, but I, I want to add the world and life. It's kind of, you know, reclaiming the 1920s yeah, yeah. kind of world and life stuff. Yeah. It's really, I think that that's more helpful, but um, can you help us think through what, what's the difference between a, a religion and a worldview and like a social imaginary? Yeah. Social imaginary, that's Taylor's term. And uh, I think he's using that to do the work that others um, um, 
use concepts like worldview or plausibility, plausibility structures mm -hmm. to do. So I think there's overlap on that. Okay. But it's it's a way of thinking about imagining, constructing reality and living in that um uh, you know, if you say imagine or construct it, it sounds like, well, it's just false. You're making things up. And that's not the point here. Right. Uh, but this is an activity that we all as human beings engage in. Mm -hmm. We somehow try to make sense of the world around us. And so the social imaginary is a comprehensive way of trying to imagine, trying to set out how people at particular times and contexts do this. Uh, religion, worldview, and culture these three are clearly related. All three of these terms are modern terms. You can trace, you can, uh, trace the origin. I mean, religion, etymologically, some will take it back to the Latin and the early pre-modern times. I, I just don't find that helpful. Mm -hmm. um, it really is a modern category. People worshipped God, God, spirits. They did sacrifices long before the modern era. So that's not the point. But uh, in the 18th, 19th centuries, you began to have a particular concept or set of concepts that organize how we think about those activities and whatnot. And religion then becomes kind of an accepted term. By the way, Japanese, Korean, and Chinese did not have a term for religion. That's right. That's right. Until French and English uh, was introduced, and they had to say, okay, what? Uh, how do we translate the English word religion into Japanese? And was that from Christian missionaries, or who, who was doing that? Uh, Christian missionaries, uh, explorers, uh, 19th centuries, academics going back and forth, hmm. uh, and so on. Uh, worldview is a helpful term. I, I don't want to get rid of it, but I okay. think oftentimes Christians have a kind of simplistic idea of what it is. And it's one of these terms that you can think of in a really narrow sense. You have a worldview. I have a worldview. Or you can think of it in a really broad sense. There's a Christian worldview that is different from a Buddhist worldview. Okay, that's using it in a huge sense. Mm -hmm. Even within the concept of Christian worldview, you can say the second century Christian worldview of the fathers was different from the 19th century Victorian uh, Christian worldview and so on. You brought so, that up in class once and it rocked me because I, I just never thought of it. It makes so much sense. I just had never thought of that before that Augustine was a genius, but his yeah. worldview looked a lot different than mine, actually. Yes. I mean, I mean, if you were sitting down here and we were all speaking Latin, no, uh, <laughs> he could do English. Um, we would find lots of things we agree on. Yeah. And we would also probably find some things that uh, you just kind of go, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so okay. So, sorry, I, I, I derailed you there. But uh, religion, worldview, um, p Christians often use it or, or sometimes use it in a, in a narrow way. I think probably probably Ronald Nash. I love Ronald Nash so much. Mm -hmm. I, I really, really love listening to his lectures and uh, his books are great. But a lot of people point to Nash as kind of being like, you've, you've over – emphasize the intellectual aspect of worldview you've you've yeah. made it just it's not it's not just that or it, at least it shouldn't be right yeah nash um I, I met him uh at one point during grad studies and he asked what i was doing my dissertation on and, and i told him religious language and 
And his quick response was, oh, my goodness, that has been so overworked. <laughs> and, uh, and I agree with him now. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, he was an interesting fellow. Mm-hmm. But his little book on worldviews, yeah. it, it, I mean, it defines worldviews entirely in terms of beliefs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I personally don't find that helpful. Yeah. I mean, beliefs are important, uh, but so are values. Uh, so are um, basic commitments we have. And to make sense of any of that, you have to embed them within a particular historical, social, cultural context such that it makes sense to say, uh, well, most people in Iowa 2021 don't believe in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, you know, a question of, well, we looked at the idea of reincarnation, we considered the evidence for it and decided it's insufficient. Uh, it's just not a, a possible option yeah. for most uh, people that growing up on a farm in Iowa. And uh, so worldview, you, if you're going to use that, I think you have to flesh it out in such a way that it captures more than just isolated ideas yeah. and look for, looking for consistency within a set of ideas. Yeah. So with that, with that said, Dr. Nutland, is we, there's always more clarification, which is so important to, to know. And, and again, like when you're most, most of this requires dialogue, but would you say there is a Christian worldview that, that we could, that Christians today could agree on? Um, and, and then maybe a further, a different question. Is there a Christian worldview that we can agree on today that, that Augustine would agree on as well? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't use the language of worldview there. Okay. Uh, and, and again, I would have to ask, who do you mean by Christians? Because mm-hmm. if you're using all 33% of the human population, all the Orthodox, Catholic, Protestants of any stripe, uh, I mean, is there a set of ideas that everybody would agree on out of that 33%? If it is, it's going to be pretty abstract and pretty vacuous. And yeah. so um, I think a more helpful way to come at that would be to ask, um, are there certain beliefs, certain commitments that um, Christians throughout the ages um, have held uh, in a desire to be faithful to the written scriptures? Uh, even there, it's going to be tough. But I think, yes, you can identify a set of commitments and beliefs there. Um, But identifying those gets you involved in boundary maintenance. What is orthodox? What is heretical? Uh, What is absolutely necessary to include? What is secondary and uh, optional? And, And the fact is most Christians just don't agree on a lot of those questions. Yeah. Do you, do you think this is completely off topic? Do you think Lewis's mere Christianity does anything to to help that? Do you, do you think that he's picked out the the core of of Christianity? Oh, I think it's I think it was a brilliant work, and mere his intention in using that word was to try and get at you know, let's talk about what is just basic and mm-hmm. uh, at the heart of the Christian message and the gospel. And that should be what we're about. And um, so, I mean, I would focus on questions like, is there a God? What is God like? Okay, without getting into all the omnis and all the abstract discussions, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, okay? Morally righteous, perfect. Uh, who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? That's another defining question. And then um, the issue of salvation. What really is at the heart of salvation? And uh, what are the conditions for salvation? Now, those three sets of issues will take you right to the heart of the Christian gospel. Um, but if we're going to be fair, we have to say, well, probably agree on some pretty basic things with lots of caveats and footnotes that say, okay, this can be taken this way or it could be taken that way. Yeah. And uh, and actually, the older I get, uh, you know, I'm just realizing God has allowed it to develop this way. Right. I mean, this isn't some accident that caught God off guard here. Um, he has allowed a measure of interpretive uh, fluidity. Uh, his church survives, mm -hmm. and uh, and the gospel uh, is is global. It's worldwide, uh, in spite of these disagreements on secondary and tertiary matters. Yeah, that that's been a, a blessing for me to realize, because coming into seminary, I was so. I want to know what's true. And then I want everyone else to believe exactly that too. Come on. Like, let's, you know, cause I, I didn't want to just be right. I wanted unity Yeah, <clears throat> and, and seeing the, the uh, theological and phenomenological perspective, even <clears throat> kind of, I, I can't see from God's eye perspective. I know that, but you know, people in the comments are probably going to freak out, but seeing, seeing it from God's perspective, he gave us theological tenets and doctrines and, uh, you know, scripture. He gave us guys like Augustine and, and and church fathers to help us think through those. But he also is guiding human history in the yeah. in the phenomenological. And he he could have done it differently if he wanted Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And yet he allowed us to have developed these perspectives. And one pastor told me once that it's actually good for us to have um, people who have different emphases. Some some really really focus on on the hands of the church. We're just going to go right. out and we're going to feed others are, are really focused on, on doctrine and this is right. And this is wrong. And others are focused on hey, I'm, I'm trying to listen to the spirit. And yeah. a lot of us get it all wrong, but together we need each other and we need even absolutely. individual people in each church. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, so we have worldview down um, and, and social imaginary kind of, is that, does that pick out? Is that like a, the, the center between worldview and, and culture or, or, what do, you, what do you think? Well, he never really tightly defines it. And the way he uses it, um, I, I hear him using it as a, an alternative term to pick up what uh, Peter Berger and other sociologists have used the concept of plausibility, mm -hmm. plausibility structures to get at. And, uh, and then sometimes uh, what we mean by worldview comes in here as well, although that's also a term he tends to avoid. So um, it, it's a way of thinking about the world and our place in the world and then intentionally living accordingly. How, what's wrong? Is plausibility structure too, um, too cognitive as well? Because that, that one seems like a decent word too, but I wonder why, why that one's been like kind of fallen out of popular parlance. Yeah. Um, well, it was introduced uh, a long time ago uh, in Berger's early work. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, a lot of people just have, don't read Berger anymore. But, uh, I mean, there are different ways. Uh, plausibility structure simply refers to the set of factors 
uh, social factors, historical, other influential factors that work to make a particular value or idea seem reasonable to a particular group at a particular time. I mean, that covers a lot of ground. Yeah. And uh, Well, is that <clears> – <throat> so right now uh, there's been all this – release of uh ufo stuff have, have you seen any of this oh, some of it, yeah yeah and it's it's reshaping our our plausibility structures yeah but it doesn't seem like there's an intentional um actor behind it that that's saying i want to reshape your plausibility structure it's just kind of right, happening right, right. Did, is that part of might that be a distinction between social imaginary and plausible like how, how in how important is it for for Action, uh, intentional action to be behind it. Is this just something that that's caught, or do people intentionally are they able to change plausibility structures and social imaginaries? Well, I think in most cases there isn't intentional um, actors or actions behind it. Now, in some cases, there clearly is. Yeah, uh, you get a um, a highly authoritarian, atheistic regime, North Korea. Albania at an earlier time, the old Soviet Union, Cuba, some of these places, there's intentional action to wipe out religion or to indoctrinate people so that they don't believe in religious realities. Mm -hmm. So that would be very intentional. But generally, the way we use this, these are events and forces that develop um, and there are unintended consequences as they develop. And so, I mean, just to take one example, the emergence of modern market capitalism. Okay, mm -hmm. that's a modern phenomenon. Uh, the ancient world didn't organize themselves economically in that way. Um, you have actors that are working to bring about certain desired ends, but it's not like it's all controlled uh, up in some <laughs> office somewhere. There are all kinds of unintended consequences and uh, much of it affects religion. Mm -hmm. The whole marketing, advertising, uh, competitive uh, aspect of modern religion is directly, I think, related to the emergence of market capitalism. And with that, the growth of advertising and competition for goods. Yeah. Well, that, that uh, sorry, another random one. But who do you think has the most influence on the social imaginary uh, to date, do you think it are artists still relevant in in shaping that at all, or is it is it mostly advertising? Is it is it the news? Is does one stick out more than than others? Is it Twitter? Oh my, yeah. Uh, let's not go to Twitter. Um, I don't know. My short answer, I don't know. And mm -hmm. I think the wrong approach is to try to look for one or two. Um, key factors that are driving everything else. I think it's just much more complicated than that. Yeah. I think a lot depends on where you look. And this is part of my unhappiness with uh, what used to be more popular, the modernity, post-modernity divide. Uh, it was just very hard to make any sense out of that. But ultimately, it really depends on where you look. Hmm. If you're looking at certain academic departments in the humanities, then you find certain things. If you're looking at blue-collar uh, construction workers uh, throughout the society, you're, you're seeing something else. If you're looking at um, biochemists, uh, you tend to find another. So we live in a very complicated 
social reality and globalization we haven't talked about much yeah. yet yeah. but with globalization um the constraints of geography which used to separate peoples and civilizations and ideas cultures and religions the constraints of geography just are not that important anymore uh, it's not to say they're not important but what it means for me to live in my local setting here in Chicago is also shaped by factors going on all around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, so that complicates things. And it's whether you're looking at food, uh, entertainment, philosophical ideas, religious practices, uh, so on. Um, it's hard to say what is local and what comes in from the outside anymore. It, it has become so intermingled. And, yeah. um, and that has affected religion and hugely affected Buddhism. I tried to chart a little of that in chapter three of the book, because Buddhism today, especially in North America and in Europe, but even in Asia, is very different from what it was four or five hundred years ago. Yeah, the, the, the globalization is so interesting. There was that, that uh, ship... Um, evergreen got stuck in the canal and people yeah, yeah. people were, were were some people's deliveries were, were slowed down and they're like oh this is actually affecting me the ship over way across the world Absolutely. and then and then people are watching this uh or listening to this and there's people in australia and i look at the the thing i see who listens and people in, in australia listen so it's it's insane can you can you go into just a little bit about um as we're closing up, uh, Buddhism and, and how modern, uh, how about how globalization has has shaped it? I know it's a huge topic. You wrote a whole chapter yeah. on it. Yeah. So for those who who want more, you know, grab the book. It's Christianity and Religious Diversity. Um, but yeah, Doctor Nolan, are you are you able to to kind of give us a view of that? Um. Well, the idea of Buddhism as one religion emerges in the nineteenth century, hmm. and uh, this was encouraged in part by uh, some British and Americans who were really interested in Buddhism. And so, you know, they would talk Buddhists in China and Japan and uh, Ceylon at the time, Sri Lanka today, Thailand. They said, well, this is all one religion. You know, we're all talking about the same uh, Gautama and so on. The canonical texts uh, are, are often quite different. Hmm. China, Tibet, Japan, Korea, uh, Sri Lanka. But you have this growing sense of, ah, we're one religion. The empowerment of the laity, this was very intentional in South Asia. Uh, meditation used to be something that was restricted to the monks, mm -hmm. and even not all monks meditated. Uh, the study of the uh, sutras, uh, this was restricted to the monks, and not all monks were literate. And so the idea that uh, we can publish the writings of uh, the Buddhists, the sayings of Gautama. And you don't have to be a monk to read this. Uh, anybody can read this. And not only that, you don't have to be a monk in a monastery to meditate. You can do this at home. Mm. Uh, these would be innovations that uh, came. The, the note, I'll close with this one. <laughs> the idea that Buddhism is more compatible with science than is Christianity there's a very conscious, intentional um, construction of that idea in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, largely by those who were very unhappy with Christianity. 
And so Buddhism is portrayed as uh, an alternative. And uh, partly because of the metaphysics of Buddhism is supposed to be more in, in tune with um, modern physics. Yeah. So there again, you can see a, a certain narrative that develops and becomes accepted um, and uh, trace that to certain historical people and events in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah. So I have like uh, just a kind of a hermeneutics of suspicion going on in my head because of the, the milieu that I'm in. Because ah, suspicion ones. Yes. <laughs> Do, well, um, so it seems someone could say, you know, these European I mean, white devils came through and, and they wanted to they wanted to unify uh the, they wanted to unify against the the will of the the people was this uh were were the buddhists were any buddhists actively i know you say any i'm sure somewhere or not but was it a a large movement within the the buddhist um of the buddhists of south asia and and where the diaspora where they were where they were to unify or was that something that was imposed on on them and saying no you guys are all saying the same thing Oh, no, certainly wasn't imposed on them. And, uh, yeah, there were efforts uh, by Buddhists throughout South and East Asia to form an international alliance and mm-hmm. to cooperate more and so on. There are also real differences between uh, Theravada, Mahayana Buddhism, uh, and even Tibetan Buddhism. And so local distinctives emerge. Uh, but in the Japanese case, for example, um, Buddhism had something of a revival in the 19th century when the Protestant Christian missionaries came in. Mm. Uh, Buddhism was really fairly decadent, and um, it was not at its highest at that period. And um, as as a nationalistic movement against the foreign missionaries coming in, there was there's a revival of uh, Buddhism uh, in Japan that takes place. And so... Um, new schools, new ways of thinking, uh, combining with elements of Japanese nationalism, moving mm-hmm. to the 20s and 30s. Uh, this was kind of a reactionary movement against the foreign influences, something like what you have happening in India with uh, Hinduism. Yeah. Um, in that, during that interplay uh, or the, the reaction, did 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 elements of christianity shape certain aspects of of the buddhism did they did they did they hey you guys like this this is pulling some of our people so we're gonna we're gonna take some was there any kind of that shaping going on or was it all yes purely reaction no we don't want any part of that no there's some of that um you had the ymca young men's christian association Hmm. uh you ended up with a young men's buddhist association um, so on Sunday, I mean, you never used to have uh, Sunday school classes in Buddhist temples and whatnot. Some places you would see this emerging as kind of intentional ways of counteracting the Christian influence, but borrowing from them. Yeah. Uh, Jesus becomes a really popular figure. Uh, Buddhists and Hindus are fascinated with Jesus, but uh, you know, he becomes a uh, bodhisattva in Buddhism or else an avatar in Hinduism. Uh, but they're fascinated with Jesus. And so you do see uh, cross influences. Yes. That's what was so interesting about your, cla- your class in the book is that even looking from the 1900s onward, how different religions are because of globalization and modernization. 
we we tend to think, you know, this is an ancient ancient uh, religion. This is Buddhism. You look back at this temple, and I saw it in my book, and that I had to read for you know, undergraduate class. And yeah, they all go back thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, and they and they absolutely do. But they've been shaped, and by the time we we get them today, they've all been shaped by each other and by persons yeah. who want to. Who, who a lot of Christian missionaries, which was interesting, who want to come up with terminology and be able to speak, you know, ab- about these different uh, phenomena. I thought that was so interesting to think that it's a it's a largely modern concept. Well, I mean, religions change. Christianity has changed. Yeah. Um, what you have today in Nigeria, the U.S., U.K., Brazil. Uh, looks quite different from what you would have found in an Irish monastery or uh, even Victorian England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same happens with other religions. And uh, so, I mean, interestingly, in the 1980s into the 90s in Japan, uh, there was a vigorous debate among Buddhists themselves, Japanese Buddhists themselves, over whether Japanese Zen Buddhism is really Buddhist. And uh, some of them argued this has departed so much from the earlier roots of Buddhism, uh, you can't call it Buddhist any longer. Um, So that's news to any good Zen Buddhist, but that was a very live debate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely. And this has been this has been so much fun talking with you. I appreciate you just going down rabbit trails with me. It's been it's been really fun. fun. Yeah. Uh, If if if. You have a, a new book coming out. Um, are you are you allowed to talk about that yet? I am. Okay. Um, it's when, when, due when out we... in February. I'm sorry. February, February. Okay. And uh, what's what's the topic of that one? Uh, the title is "Religious Experience and the Knowledge of God," <laughs> and um, subtitle. Uh, I have to check because um, the editors very wisely changed the original title. I said, I, this is much better than what I had. So the title is Religious Experience and the Knowledge of God, subtitle, The Evidential Force of Divine Encounters. Hmm. And uh, just a lot of fun stuff. Um, I was working on it for probably five or six years over uh Time and just uh, these are issues I've been interested in for a long time. They're related to stuff I've been writing on earlier, but I was just amazed at the volume of literature and the uh, issues that need to be addressed there. So yeah, so Doctor Nathan, is this um, is this like a phenomenological account, or is it is it more like Alstonian? Like what's how is it possible to have religious experience? Some, some of both, or yeah. Well, we start out with a chapter just, uh, you know, what what do you mean by religious experience? And just trying to clarify that. And uh, then I have a chapter on interpreting, interpretation and religion, uh, religious experience. Um, How does that play out? And this is more just kind of descriptive, sorting out categories and uh, and issues. Uh, Then a really fun chapter I worked on. I look at uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley Hmm. uh, in the context of the 18th century and the uh, strong rejection of enthusiasm. And uh, both Wesley and Edwards deal with religious experience, the experience of the Holy Spirit. Um, Then I go, I do have a chapter on the critical trust approach. Okay. 
picking up on phenomenal conservatism and um, uh, Swinburne's principle of credulity. And there, yeah. there are actually half a dozen philosophers who give versions of this. Mm-hmm. So I adopt something like that. Okay. Chapter on mysticism and, and so on. But that sounds uh, fantastic. Oh man, I can't wait. Is it is it is it done? Are you still are you still finishing it? Um it's it's at Baker Academic now. Oh, and, awesome. Uh, awesome. All right. The galley should be coming out, but it's it's supposed to be out in February. Okay. That's fantastic. I, I can't wait to to jump into that one. That sounds really fun. Well, Dr. Mellon, thanks thanks for all your time here and, and thanks. I mean I'm I'm sure I'll be able to talk to you again, but before then, I just want to th- thanks for for everything you've done for me, for my brother, for KJ, helping us think through stuff, teaching us, expand us. And uh, even when we come in and we disagree with you, you've, you've always been so charitable and you've always helped us see your disagreement with uh, why do you think differently? And you've you've changed my mind on a lot of stuff. So I really, really appreciate everything God's done through you in my life. Well, Parker, thank you for letting me be a part of this. And uh uh, it's just been a delight to get to know you, and I mean this sincerely. If all students were like you, we'd be in paradise. So, <laughs> awesome. Uh, thank you, Parker. Awesome. Thank you. Well, um, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. Lord willing, we'll be able to continue this conversation later. But for now, that's it. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>